The audacity of hope to find hope in the midst of despair is a sacred thing born of wings we cannot remember we once had not knowing we will have them again to wrench joy from the jaws of unthinking degradation is a triumph beyond compare to find solace in the swirling abyss of sorrow is as courageous and act as we might perform to seek beauty in a massive pile of scattered dreams is cradling a tender innocence that cannot die to find sanctuary within a crevice of noise is a display of unconscious heroism to create within the rubble of destruction is elaborating upon the tenets of bravery to have faith when the sky is crashing around you is to demonstrate the strengths of being more than merely human to rise again from the grief that befell you is to succeed in gathering wisdom to gather wisdom from such agony is a sacred thing born of wings a poem written by Wanda Leia Brayton the audacity of hope
Mumbai, Wanderlea, Preetan, history through her eyes, history seen through her eyes. As he turned to go, he whispered, I can never write you home. It was spoken through perforations of history, those ragged splinters cleft between two hearts. Their stitchings ragged with effort and futility. One last thought offered before the wretched sinking beneath the waves of a drifting hand. A quiet, fare thee well. A final letting go. The old oak door closed heavily. A soft click of the lock, its punctuation. Silence set in the corner its head bowed. Nothing moved, not even shadows. The sea had never seemed as subdued, nor the rain as tender as those first days and nights without his presence filling this small room. His coffee cup sits on the counter, waiting to be warmed. Please, just once more. To be held between his rugged sinewy hands as he stared through the window at what lay beyond. Somewhere out there where I could never go where he knew I would not follow. Sometimes in the morning before consciousness fully arrives, I reach across the empty bed for him, forgetting he is gone. And then memory and Gravity return, 
clutching my fingers.
with casual breath inspired by sonnet 17 by Pablo Neruda for my husband written by Wanderlea Brayton with casual breath do not love you with casual breath, an unconscious act by which I only exist. No, I inhale your scent and am captured in flight, a winged creature with oceans of sky to Traverse lost inside torrid thermals rising above mountainous ranges with purpose and with feasts of pure song. I do not love you when the fire wanes on the hearth its glow fading deep into night, final sparks ascending into the realm of innocent dream. No, I embrace your warmth as we lay curled together, fluttering flames that will not cease to illuminate our surroundings with sweeter solace, scattering stars. I will not love you as the sun claims its position among bellowing clouds, filtering sepia light where shadows would shiver among the trees, petals, drifting as fruit becomes ripe and falls into our outstretched hands, a gentle harvest unimaginable to those who weep in their empty abodes alone with memories. I cannot love you with mere vagaries or ablutions, for they could not contain the vastness of this utter delight, this burrowing beneath my bones that causes my heart to sway within its fragile folds where life burgeons forth. No, I cannot regale you only with hands or with words, for they could never define these 
elegant sonatas you etch upon my very soul from the simple complexities of your gaze. heavily laden on the cusp of virginal despair held aloft by a single breath shared don't let go of my hand and I won't let go of yours moments of separation slipped through unnoticed until we open our eyes in the midst of what we thought was a dream and see we are falling fast with jagged stones waiting beneath memories of what once were mountains now become hardened tears If only our two words sighed in regret, head in hand, far too late for the salving of wounds long past the point of erasure for scars we never meant to inflict. Stop. Think before you speak there is no going back to the moment right before the hammer the axe the sieve descended upon us graft these words to your heart and memorize their sound they are all that stand between us and the gaping mouth of the world. How's everyone doing online? at lessons.online.hbs.edu Harvard Business School Online Free Business Lessons Choose a lesson to get started. There's about seven of them. Some are 30 minutes long. Some are only 15 minutes long. Let's listen to... Hmm, one of the shorter ones. 15 minutes 
leadership and management, negotiating salary. Oh, you have to enter your email for full access to free business lessons. They send you a password to your email. You use the password for future logins or reset the password at the link provided. Let's set it. Let's enter an email here. It will take a while before they send the link. Okay. Well, they just automatically sent the lesson. So let's listen. And in the introduction it says, In this lesson you'll learn how to be a more effective negotiator and improve your bargaining skills through a deal between former professional hockey player Derek Sanderson and the World Hockey Association. We'll listen to section one of 17. And by the way, they're all very interesting. Some are more thrilling than others, but this is one of the best ones. Enjoy. They'll give you videos, short video clips. They run from, say, around a minute. Some of them are as long as eight minutes. Then they'll give you a challenge question or scenario. You can write a short essay or you don't have to do do that, but they present different challenges for um, assisting your your learning experience. So enjoy.
Ken Cavanaugh. As you know, times have changed in professional sports. Our heroes no longer look as though they've leapt straight out of a box of Wheaties. Not all of them, anyway. The Joe Namath lifestyle has caught on. And in hockey, it's typified by Derek Sanderson, a tough and talented 24-year-old center with the Boston Bruins. He's outspoken on the subject of the hockey establishment and recognizes that there are other things in life besides the sport. Yet, hockey means more than just a way of becoming very rich, very young for Derek. In Boston, he's a celebrity, despite competition from his superstar teammate, Bobby Orr. I'll tell you a story about Derek Sanderson. He had played long enough that he'd become a free agent, and he was eligible to talk to other teams, not just in the National Hockey League, but in a startup, a fledgling league called the World Hockey Association. <laughs> Sanderson felt he might as well see what he's worth on the open market. He presently was being paid $75,000 a year by the Bruins, which in that day was a very good salary for a professional athlete. How much should he be looking for? He already has a good position. He's being well paid. He likes Boston. But obviously, there might be a number that would tempt him. How ambitious should he be? savored and saved for potpourri 
a scent that lingers long after the gift was given and gone. The mandates of survival require us to tend our gardens well, to remove unwanted weeds and thrust our hands into this daunting dirt. Our stems are stronger than any wind that shivers through our lives. There will always be more flowers to come. It is only these moments alone that are few and fierce. Fledglings have fallen. Fledglings have fallen from their nest. A song in their ancient rubied throats lost to the descending darkness of an unmitigated demise. Too soon they perished before they felt the rise of primordial wind beneath their nascent wings. They instinctively trusted the strength of the bow they breathed upon not understanding the power of an oncoming storm. Their parents trapped under turned leaves until it passed. And they could pursue home again. When they arrived in the emptiness you left behind the music was muted by savage fear they dared not look for you knowing your tiny hearts had become a long strange melody could not hear an odd mapping of blood on stones below their eyes. A poem titled Language inspired by the novel Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert poem by Wanda Leah Brayton titled Language 
moments may lodge in the tightening of our throats separated from sound only a murmur comes or a moan a sudden silence speaking volumes never written or recorded in any language save that of a heart swelling bursting its banks stunned into a precious pause that has no definition no borders etched on any map they can be seen in languishing gestures coiled inside cloak shadows caused by a trembling hand that reaches out stops midway between here and where it meant to go then bravely goes on gathering those same shadows into something that finally makes sense they cannot be discerned under a sterile microscope nor viewed through a stargazer's eyes they must be experienced as an individual fragment of time that ceases to move seen only through the latest whisper of a butterfly's stilled wing a portion of song given only to you only by the glistening smile of a unanimous universe there right there just before you blink a poem titled Norma Jean inspired by Marilyn Monroe's poetry written by Wanda Leah Brayton Norma Jean your sinuous vines were meant for more than bearing fruit for gathering wind in your leaves curled against the storms the soil shuddered beneath your feet swaying within the onslaught of unrepentant tides 
you were golden. A kinetic glow surrounding your skin. Too many longed to touch and tear. When the wind grew too fierce, you rode beneath your slow blankets of flame, surging, trembling. Still, we are sustained by your tragic warmth, restlessly drink from your wild vintage. A poem titled Unfeathered. A short poem by Wanderlea Brayton. Flight is precious to those who are earthbound. We see this unending sky and covet wild wings we do not have attached to our mortal frames. Yet still our souls soar beside the fragile bird who lingers aloft. Steadfast we long to seek those radiant realms where moonlight swirls without falling. We drift beside quiet streams and imagine the sea. We are creatures of gravity soliciting the stars. A short poem titled Semblance. Like the sky, tenebrous, I split spilling remnants of song. Wet bouquets gather into my arms, dense language reminiscent of loam. Categories defy mirrors, soliloquy, labels, obsequious without a discerning glance for what comes seeking wind, finding flame instead. A short poem, Songs of Neruda, inspired by an excerpt from the poem to many names by Pablo 
Neruda. Flowers remember with tender bitterness the wild and willful pleasure you found in a moment composed of only roots and stones neglecting their fragile sense with your broad hand your brimming eyes they have forgiven you with songs of unfolding silk dusky petals drift fragrances slowly across somber soil embracing you now thank you for listening History through her eyes. History seen through her eyes. As he turned to go, he whispered, I can never write you home. It was spoken through perforations of history, those ragged splinters cleft between two hearts, their stitchings ragged with effort and futility. One last thought offered before the wretched sinking beneath the waves of a drifting hand, a quiet fare thee well, a final letting go, the old oak door closed heavily, a soft click of the lock, its punctuation. Silence set in the corner, its head bowed. Nothing moved, not even shadows. The sea had never seemed as subdued, nor the rain as tender as those first days and nights without his presence 
filling this small room. His coffee cup sits on the counter, waiting to be warmed. Please, just once more. To be held between his rugged, sinewy hands as he stared through the window at what lay beyond. Somewhere out there where I could never go where he knew I would not follow. Sometimes in the morning before consciousness fully arrives, I reach across the empty bed for him, forgetting he is gone. And then memory and gravity return, clutching my fingers. heavily laden on the cusp of virginal despair held aloft by a single breath shared don't let go of my hand and I won't let go of yours moments of separation slip through unnoticed until we open our eyes in the midst of what we thought was a dream and see we are falling fast with jagged stones waiting beneath memories of what once were mountains now become hardened tears If only our two words sighed in regret, head in hand, far too late for the salving of wounds, long past the point 
of erasure for scars we never meant to inflict. Stop. Think before you speak. There is no going back to the moment right before the hammer, the axe, the sieve descended upon us. Graft these words to your heart and memorize their sound. They are all that stand between us and the gaping mouth of the world.
welcome back everybody's welcome in for more poetry in the ocean are many bright strands and dark strands like veins that are seen when a wing is lifted up your hidden self is blood in those those veins that are lute strings that make ocean music not the sad edge of surf the sound of no shore Rumi Poet, philosopher, Rumi. Of course, we have to hear from Wanda Leah Brayton. Poem titled My Love's Hands. My Love's hands, a reply to her husband, Danny Beatty's, her late husband, Danny Beatty's poem for her, titled, The Fingers of My Love Are Rivers. Her poem, My Love's Hands, the breath of my love's hands are rugged banks I flow between a sweet prevention of waters rising too high too fast to phantom destroying all in its furious path instead I drift lazily a summer's memory golden and ecstatic a child once more of the forest where I dwell in peaceful reverie the birds orchestrate their performances as the leaves ballet begins and I weep with the wonder of it all he catches my tears and wisteria forms a curl and swirl of lavender reflecting the mighty oceans that surge within his eyes. His umber moan, his wild pony mane Take flight beneath my gaze. A swift burning urge to lift into the wind and flee the bonds of earthen gestures of surly skies that would have us cast down among forgotten stars 
we shall not descend except to kiss the butterfly wings as they unfurl from their chrysalis, slightly confused and beautiful with their nascent unknowing. His arms gather me, his voice holds me, the stilled and burrowing into his warmth, his fingers hold vast universes to enchant me and do. His storms are sudden, they soak me to the bone, and I seek shelter within the spaces between his clouds and wait for his son to return, glancing across the horizon where wheat stalks have weak stalks have W-H-E-A-T wheat stalks wave underneath his boldness of breath his ferocity of gracious harvesting he holds the season in his grasp lightly knowing precisely when to let them go watching them with quiet pride as they burst into bloom the breath of my love's hands are rugged banks I flow between serene and glistening beneath tides of the moon we are angels among men merely waiting for our ribs to spread their remembered wings to seek the sky with purpose and gratitude for the hard-earned knowledge of sustaining soil flames on your breath 
as you enter my circumference. Feather me to your mountainous moments and shred me with rapturous laughter. Do not weep me gently. Plunge with me deep. There is water at the bottom of this well. Show me the wrath of Khan's money. Keep your Sigmund Freud to yourself. Thanks. Don't finesse my bullshit. Pillage my bones without remorse. Open wide and say, ah. Dance with your merciless seven veils until your eyes evolve into a colorless glance. Wash, rinse, repeat. Do not iron my curls. Life is far too straight and narrow. Crash into my shuttered windows with a stuttered flower, bold and truthful. Make me shudder wild. Rip open this bag of chips and bite into the creamy center. Don't worry about your salt intake. Spice is nice. Consume chaos. Unclamp the hinges of the pit bull's jaws and sever the stream of severity. Chew thoroughly every rainbow that swoops. Crook yourself into my palm without squirming. Follow my lead and I'll follow yours without squinting against the light, sight unseen. My fingers know the way home. Pour yourself a tall glass of air and shotgun the title warnings. I'll literate the horizon without closure. Origami my heart unfold my soul. Evict your nosy noisy neighbors and partake of the premises. Forget what isn't and remember what will be. Swallow this song without Heimelik's assistance. Unwrap the sunset and set the table sporadically. Attend this feast 
without shoes. It's payday for the stars. despair is a sacred thing born of wings we cannot remember we once had not knowing we will have them again to wrench joy from the jaws of unthinking degradation is a triumph beyond compare to find solace in the swirling abyss of sorrow is as courageous an act as we might perform. To seek beauty in a massive pile of scattered dreams is cradling a tender innocence that cannot die. To find sanctuary within a crevice of noise is a display of unconscious heroism. To create within the rubble of destruction is elaborating upon the tenets of bravery. To have faith when the sky is crashing around you is to demonstrate the strengths of being more than merely human. To rise again from the grief that befell you is to succeed in gathering wisdom, to gather wisdom from such agony is a sacred thing born of wings. A poem written by Wanda Leah Brayton The Audacity of Hope
Such.
Oh, uh -huh. 
Welcome in everyone. Going to review some of the contents in this book by Sheikh Anta Diop. A N T A. Last name Diop or Diop. D I O P. His title Sheikh. You see it's spelled C-H-E-I-K-H. Jake 
Antideal Anthropology Anthropologist the late great Sheikh Antideal Well we looked at one of his books before several weeks ago This one is a different one The title it's titled Civilization or Barbarism and Authentic Anthropology. And the late great doctor is anthropologist and several other specialties well known for this uh, debate he had at the UNESCO with the world's or 16 of the world's leading anthropologists and that's so famous and renowned read up on it if you want all the details but he basically wiped the floor wiped the floor with them it appears they didn't bother to do their research and he was able to um, let's just say he, he was able to slam dunk the research that they failed to do with the thorough research that he's done his books are just fascinating And I'm sure you'll find him and Dr. Theophile Banga on YouTube discussing their uh, debate with the world-leading anthropologist. Excuse me. (laughs) You'll hear it for yourself on YouTube if you want a good laugh. Okay, now we're looking at one of his books, Civilization or Barbarism. Of course, it looks like it's about 300, 400 pages. And a lot of it's been translated from French. Well, he's Senegalese, so they speak so many languages there. And let me shout out. My Senegalese brothers and sisters, Nagadef, how are you, Nagadef? Magnifi, I hope you're magnificent. Looking at Dr. Antadiop's book, it's full of reproductions from antiquity from many of the museums all over the world. Just breathtaking, breathtaking quality research. Okay, so in this one what jumps out is this Byzantine icon from the 11th century A.D. 
It's a depiction of Abraham and Sarah before the black pharaoh. It's in the Bible when Abraham and Sarah stand before the black pharaoh. There's another one in here on the Hebrews in Egypt. And he shows the original Egyptians, black people. The Hebrews that are in the picture are leucoderms. I had to look that one up. Leucoderms. L-E-U-O-D-E-R-M. I had no clue what that word meant. But um, this is what I found online. It says, a person with a white or light skin, a person belonging to a light-skinned race. That's MerriamWebster.com. Let's see if we can get a little more from Merriam-Webster. I kind of favor Oxford Dictionary. Just because it's, uh, to me, it's just inspiring. You get a lot more information from Oxford. But anyways, this is what it says. Leucoderm, a noun. Oh, you can't even save it without logging in. Okay, definition of leucoderm. White or light skin, a person belonging to a light-skinned race. trying to sell you a free trial or something else if you like words and L-E-U-C plus D-E-R-M from the Greek dermo or I'm sorry from Greek derma skin derma and Lou, L-E-U. I'm sure that means light. Leucocytosoan. Leucoester. Well, see, this is why I like uh, Oxford Dictionary. made you look up this word please tell us where you read or heard it including the quote if possible (laughs) and they're trying to sell you everything under the sun and don't hardly give you any information about the word its origin or nothing well yeah they tell you Derma is from the Greek. That's 
That's as far as they go. <laughs> so, anyways, let's go back to the book. <laughs> you already know. You already know. I'll spend just one hour talking about that one word. Okay. I have not even read a whole chapter in this book. Um, it's been a few months or weeks but I got a couple of his books and a couple of other books and it's like being a kid in the candy store you just oh, you just really feel like you won the lotto okay let's see what the forward says Shake Anta Diop is considered to be one of the greatest scholars to emerge in the African world in the 20th century. He was born in Diorbel, D-I-O-U-R-B-E-L, Diorbel. Senegal, Senegal, a town on the west coast of Africa in 1923. His birthplace has a long tradition of producing Muslim scholars and oral historians. This is where his inspiration and interests in history, the humanities, and the social sciences from an African point of view began. Yes, he's professor in African history too. The years of his life, 1923 through 86, and the creation of his work were years of transition and change for the whole of the African world. In the United States, the Pan-African Congresses, under the leadership of W.E.B. Du Bois, were well underway. African Americans were still debating Booker T. Washington's theory of education favorably while dismissing his theory of participation. The first of the trials of Marcus Garvey in relationship to the Black Star Line had already started and the largest African-oriented movement ever to be built was well underway in spite of the trials and tribulations of Garvey in the Caribbean the intellectuals on the larger islands especially Jamaica Trinidad and Barbados were fighting for a constitutional government from the French-speaking islands, 
Guadalupe and Martinique and from what was then called French Guyana. Representatives were being sent to the French Parliament who spoke clearer and more precise French than most Frenchmen. In Africa, most of the warrior nationalists of the 19th century had either been driven into exile, imprisoned, or removed from power. Missionary trained Africans were capturing the attention of the colonial administrations while the physical fight against colonialism had abated, the intellectual fight continued from this period until the eve of the African independence explosion in the late 1950s. African political literature appeared mainly in South Africa and in West Africa, in Ghana, Nigeria, in Sierra Leone. In 1945, Caribbean Islanders and Africans in England convened the 5th Pan-African Congress in Manchester. In attendance at the Congress were Kwame Nkrumah, who was one of the conveners, Jomo Kenyatta, Nambi Azikiwe of Nigeria, Peter Abrams of South Africa, and Amy Ashwood Garvey, the first wife of Marcus Garvey. Not one of these participants had forgotten the re-stimulation in African thought brought on by the Italian-Ethiopian War of 1935 through 36 and the death of Marcus Garvey in 1940. They were meeting in part to pay tribute to Marcus Garvey and as a reminder that Africans had to reclaim Africa for Africans. Sheikh Anta Diop lived through the African independence explosion that began with the independence of Ghana in March 1958. The aftermath of this event was bright and hopeful.
but unfortunately short-lived. Diop lived to see Africa turned against itself, motivated in part by its former colonial masters who were still behind the scenes controlling the destiny of the continent. He lived to plan a solution that came to the attention of a few serious scholars. On the eve of his unfortunate passing, he was just beginning to reach the audience that would give him the recognition he deserved. All African people everywhere are closer to a better understanding of their history and destiny because of the personality and work of Sheikh Antadiop. Using the disciplines on linguistics, cultural and physical anthropology, history, chemistry, and physics that his research required. He forged new theoretical pathways and revealed new evidence in the quest to uncover the ancient origins and unifying principles of classical African civilizations. He was not only an innovative theoretician, but he was also a pragmatist. He published works that offered programmatic suggestions for the political and economic unification of Africa. For example, in his book, Black Africa, The Economic and Cultural Basis for a Federated State, he presented a blueprint for saving the mineral wealth of Africa for generations still unborn. This book is neither widely read nor understood, and this is unfortunate because it is one of his more useful books. In some ways, he went beyond Pan-Africanism. He was a scholar activist dedicated to science in the interest of his people. He saw Africa and its people as the hope of humanity. Civilization or barbarism is Sheikh Anta Diop's magnum opus and the last of his great contributions to the clarification of Africa world history. In many ways, this book is a summation and an extension of his previous research 
it is a refinement of his analysis and a final statement reflecting the completion of his mission through this book he has left us an historical legacy that will inspire future historians and researchers who seek the truth about the role of Africa in world history. Before his untimely death, he had stated that this would be his last scholarly work. His intent was to devote the remainder of his life to the development of a political master plan that would save Africa for the Africans. I first became aware of the writings of Sheikh Antadeo in 1958 while reading the proceedings of the first and second conferences of Negro writers and artists. His work was a revelation to me because I had not encountered in print an African scholar so forthright in challenging prevailing misconceptions about African history and in putting forth a new creative view with documentation. When I read his contribution to this first conference, quote, the cultural contribution and prospects of Africa, end quote, I began to inquire about his other writings. I discovered later that content of this article was part of a chapter of a future book. In reading the proceedings of the second conference held in Rome in 1959, my curiosity grew concerning this new voice in the wilderness of African historiography. I then discovered that Presence Africaine had published a comprehensive work by him on African history, the African origin of civilization, myth, or reality. When I attended the second meeting of the International Congress of Africanness in Dakar, Senegal, which met at the University of Dakar in 1967, I sought out Dr. Diop. I was surprised to learn that his office and laboratory were located on the campus of the university, less than 300 yards from the assembly hall where the Congress was being held Yet, he was not one of the participants at the conference. The sponsoring organization 
the African Studies Association was then dominated by white scholars and to this day it has not recognized the scholarship of Sheikh Anta Diop and his contributions to a new concept of African history. Neither his name nor his work was mentioned at the conference. I visited him in his laboratory and discussed the long effort that African Americans and Caribbean Americans had engaged in to write about and preserve African history. Some of the names that I mentioned he had never heard of. The first meeting went quite well, better than I had expected because we had to speak to each other through an interpreter. I returned to the United States and spent the next seven years trying to convince American publishers that the books of Sheikh Anta Diop should be translated into English and published in the United States. I first mentioned my efforts to my friend and colleague, the late Ali Un Diop, who encouraged me to continue in spite of the repeated disappointments. It was not until 1974 that an American publisher, Lawrence Hill and Company, saw fit to publish Diop's book, The African Origin of Civilization. The African Origin of Civilization is a one-volume translation of the major sections of two other books by Diop, Nations Negres et Culture and Anterior Rite des Civilas. I'm trying to, uh, excuse me, I'm trying to translate the French into Spanish. Anteriorite des civilizaciones negres. These two works have challenged and changed the direction of attitudes about the place of African people in history in scholarly circles around the world. It was largely due to these works that Sheikh Anta Diop with W.E.B. Du Bois was honored as quote the writer who had exerted the greatest influence on African people in the 20th century end quote 
at the World Black Festival of Arts and Culture held in Dakar, Senegal in 1966. The main thrust of the African origin of civilization is a redefinition of the place of Egypt in African history. Here Diop calls attention to the historical, archaeological, and anthropological evidence that supports his thesis. Diop states, quote, the history of Africa will remain suspended in the air and cannot be written correctly until African historians connect it with the history of Egypt. End quote. I wrote a review of this book which reads in part, Sheikh Antadiop one of the most able of present-day scholars writing about Africa is also one of the greatest living African historians. His first major work, Nations Negres et Culture, 1954, is still disturbing the white historians who have made quick reputations as authoritarians on African history and culture. And I'll just open a parenthesis and say that was before the UNESCO Congress conference when um, Dr. Diop and Dr. Theophil Obenga wiped the floor with his so-called world-leading anthropologist. Um, Lost my place. (laughs) It's always so funny when you read his his books because you learn so much in every sentence. His first work, I read it. In this book, Dr. Diop shows the interrelationships between African nations, North and South, and proves because in this case, proof is needed again and again that ancient Egypt was a distinct African nation and was not historically or culturally a part of Asia or Europe. This book and others of recent years, all by African writers, have called for a total reconsideration of the role that African people have played in history and their impact on the development of early societies 
and institutions in a review of Martin Bernal's book, Black Athena, the English writer Basil Davidson makes the following statement about how Egypt, as a part of Africa, was left out of world history. But isn't Egypt other issues apart, quite simply a part of Africa? That, it seems, is a merely geographical irrelevance. The civilization of Pharaonic Egypt, arising sometime around 3500 B.C. 3500 B.C. and continuing at least until the Roman dispositions has been explained to us as evolving either in more or less total isolation from Africa or as a product of West Asian stimulus on this deeply held view, the land of ancient Egypt appears to have detached itself from the delta of the Nile some five and a half thousand years ago and sailed off into the Mediterranean on a course bearing broadly towards the coasts of Syria. And there it apparently remained floating, floating somewhere in the seas of the Levant until Arab conquerors hauled it back to where it had once belonged. And this is written by Dr. John Henry Clark, the late great Dr. John Henry Clark, who has a great sense of humor even in his writing. For me, I love all the people on all the continents, regardless of the temporary status of their pigmentation, because we know that a case of vitiligo, the discoloration of the skin, where the skin no longer makes, or the cells of the derma no longer makes pigment pigmentation or coloring of the skin we know once that stops everybody has the same bleached out bland either white or pink or some other colorless we will all then be leucoderms so you know it's really a joke to classify people by or really to discriminate against people because of the color of their temporary color of their skin alright I'll close my parentheses and back to Dr. Clark's forward now what is one 
to make of this unlikely view of the case coming as it has from venerable seats of learning does its strength derive from a long tradition of research and explanation is it what Europeans have always thought to be true have the records of ancient times been found to support it as Martin Bernal has now most ably shown in his Black Athena the remarkable book about which I am chiefly writing here the answer to such questions is plainly and unequivocally in the negative that the ancient Egyptians were black parentheses again in any variant you may prefer <laughs> close parentheses or as I myself think it is more useful to say were African is a belief which has been denied in your <coughs> excuse me a belief which has been denied in Europe since about 1830, not before. It is a denial, in short, that belongs to the rise of modern European imperialism. Good old colonizers, including my great-great-grandfather, from Scotland so don't get offended anyone continuing and as to be explained in terms of the quote new racism end quote especially and even fanatically an anti-black racism which went together with and was consistently nourished by that imperialism. I say, quote, new racism, end quote, because it followed and further expanded the older racism which spread around Europe after the Atlantic slave trade had reached its high point of, quote, takeoff, close quote, in about 1630. Oh, I have to tell you all, I could just read this book and not sleep for days. <laughs> Forgive me, but God bless Dr. Clark for having the, the tenacity to, to have these books of Dr. Diop's published in the United States. Continuing, if we understand Davidson's statement, we must also understand the consequences of the second rise of Europe and its recovery 
from the Middle Ages. In the 15th and 16th centuries, Europe not only began to colonize most of the world, but also instituted a systematic colonization of information about the world. Consequently, the work of Sheikh Anta Diop and other African historians, both in Africa and in the United States, is a restoration project, an attempt to restore what slavery and colonial colonialism had taken away. While the main focus of Diop's book, Civilizational Barbarism, is Egypt and its relationship to early world history, he gives us a panoramic view of how Africa, its nations, peoples, and culture relate to the whole world. In a previous work, uh oh, in French, I don't speak French. Okay. L'antiquete, l'antiquete, evolution of the black world from prehistory to the end of antiquity. Diop had documented a little known aspect of the African European connection. He dealt with the Grimaldi man and his presence in Europe over 6,000 years ago. In both works, Lantiquete and Civilization or Barbarism, he raises some questions that are both topical and historical, mainly the African origin of the people who are now referred to as Europeans. Uh, I love this. And I have European blood too, so if anybody gets offended, I pray for you. I just pray for you. It doesn't offend me at all. What offends me is my beginning with myself, how we're not trying to find this information and work toward a better understanding. That's what offends me. But I digress. Continuing in the introduction to civilization or barbarism, Diop explains the methodology he used in putting the book together, the conclusions he reached, and how he documented these conclusions 
both with fact and logic. In setting forth his arguments, he had to deal with the contradictions that relate to Egyptian history and to African history in general. He repeatedly refers to the Southern African origins of the Egyptians. He infers that the Nile River was the world's first cultural highway stretching 4,000 miles into the body of Africa bringing culture and people out of the heart of Africa who gave stimulus to Egypt and constantly renewed its energy. In chapter one, quote, prehistory, prehistory race and history, origin of humanity and racial differences. The explains the early development of Africa and how its cultures and religions eventually influenced the Western world. In particular, and the whole world in general, the Ope states, quote, the general problem confronting African history is this, how to reorganize effectively through meaningful research all of the fragments of the past into a single ancient epic an origin which will re-establish African continuity if the ancients were not victims of a mirage. It should be easy enough to draw upon another series of arguments and proofs for the union of history of Ethiopian and Egyptian societies with the rest of Africa. Thus combined, these histories would lead to a properly patterned past in which it would be seen that ancient Ghana rose in the interior West Africa of the continent at the moment of Egyptian decline, just as the Western European empires were born with the decline of Rome. This is just fascinating. And yes, it may step on some some of the prior research may may um, clash with that but unfortunately that's the way life is 
doesn't evolve, just dies. That includes our understanding of uh, civilization and history and cultures. We, like I said, we need to rethink colorism and race and all the foolishness that uh, I think my two-year-old Ethiopian neighbor the jolliest, sweetest little child is more mature than half the adults I know. <laughs> In two years, most of us forgot who, who, who is who in the neighborhood, but this little two-year-old, he, he remembers all of us. He just goes wild now that he sees us after the um, the pandemic, he didn't see a lot of us. But now when he sees us, he just goes wild. He's jumping, leaping out of his baby stroller. He's a big, healthy, beautiful baby. But when he sees us, he doesn't see color. He just sees the people that just loved him from the time he was a little tot and now he just blossomed into just a remarkable little child so you know we should take lessons from the the children I lost my place again oh my god I'm running out of time and I lost my place Um, I remember saying something about Rome the decline of Rome here we go while using Africa as the vantage point and the basis for his thesis Diop does not neglect the broader dimensions of history he shows that history cannot be restricted by the limits of ethnic group nation or culture Roman history is Greek as well as Roman and both Greek and Roman history are Egyptian because the entire Mediterranean was civilized by Egypt Egypt in turn borrowed from other parts of Africa, especially Ethiopia. As Diop explains, Africa came into the Mediterranean world mainly through Greece, which had been under African influence. The first Greek invasion of Africa was peaceful. This invasion brought in Herodotus. Egypt had lost its independence over a century before his visit. This was the beginning of the period of foreign domination over Egypt 
that would last in different forms for 2,000 years. Now you see why I love, love, love this author and his books. Check him out on YouTube. Oh boy. Okay, we have a few minutes left. Diop approaches the history of Africa frontally, head on, with explanations but no apologies in locating Egypt on the map of human geography. He asks and answers the question, who were the Egyptians of the ancient world? And he's since been at UNESCO. He's proven it. He brought all the research, the leading anthropologists. They couldn't say anything. He wiped the floor, wiped the floor with them. He proved over and over and over again his point that the original Egyptians were black Africans. The the Ethiopians said that Egypt was one of their colonies, which was brought to them by the deity Osiris. Greek writer Herodotus repeatedly referred to the Egyptians as being dark-skinned people with woolly hair. He said they have the same tint of skin as the Ethiopians. The opinion of the ancient writers on the Egyptians is more or less summed up by Gaston Maspero 1846 through 1916 in The Dawn of Civilization where he says by the almost unanimous testimony of ancient historians, they, the Egyptians, belong to an African race which first settled in Ethiopia on the Nile, on the middle Nile, following the course of the river they gradually reached the sea. Quote, The Greek writer Herodotus may be mistaken. Sheikh Anta Diop tells us, quote, when he reports the customs of a people, but one must grant that he was at least capable of recognizing the skin color of the inhabitants of countries he visited, close quote. His descriptions of the Egyptians were the descriptions of a black people. At this point, the reader needs to be reminded of the fact that at the time of Herodotus' 
visit to Egypt and other parts of Africa between 484 and 425 B.C. Egypt's golden age was over. Egypt had suffered several invasions, mainly the Kushite invasion coming from within Africa in 751 B.C. and the Assyrian invasions from Western Asia called the Middle East starting starting in 671 B.C. If Egypt, after years of invasions by other peoples and nations, was a distinct black African nation at the time of Herodotus, should we not at least assume that it was more so before these invasions occurred? Dr. Dia, if Egypt is a dilemma in Western historiography, it is a created dilemma. The Western historians, in most cases, have rested the foundations of what is called, quote, Western civilization, close quote, on the false assumptions or claim that the ancient Egyptians were white people. To do this, they had to ignore great masterpieces of Egyptian history written by other white historians who did not support this point of view, such as Gerald Massey's great classic, Ancient Egypt, The Light of the World, 1907, and his subsequent works, The Book of the Beginnings, and the natural genesis. Other neglected works by white writer, writers are politics, intercourse, and trade of the Carthaginians and Ethiopians by A. H. L. Hearing, 1833, and the ruins of empire by Count C. F. Volney, 17. 87. Okay, we're just about out of time. We have less than a half a second. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Stay safe, everybody.